Well, good, mo- good morning, friends. It's good to see all of you here this morning. My name is David Rapp. I'm one of the pastors here at Deer Creek Church and also am gonna be working over this next year to help start a new church uh, in the Golden area. Deer Creek Church is a church that's very committed to starting new churches in new places. And I've had the privilege over the last several weeks of visiting some of our newer church plants and getting to preach there and see what God's doing there. And we're going to be launching a new church in the Inglewood area this fall that you guys might consider going and being a part of. Uh, And then next year we'll be launching a new church in the Golden area. So things for you to be considering and praying about. Uh, If you'd like to know more about how you could get connected with one of these church plants, how you can pray for them, how you can help support them financially to get them established, I'd love to talk to you about that. Uh, But this morning we are continuing on... continuing on in our summer psalm series. And this morning we're looking at Psalm 63. And what Psalm 63 is intending to do in us and to us is to increase our desire and our longing to experience God's presence as we gather together for worship. So the title of the psalm, which is inspired, says, A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So David, this is King David, was a refugee. He was running for his life out in the wilderness, fleeing from either King Saul or more probably from his own son Absalom, who was seeking to kill him. So this is the situation. David was the king. He was used to living in the palace in Jerusalem, but now he's in essence in exile. He's away from the palace, away from God's place, and he's running for his life. Imagine what that experience would feel like, being betrayed by someone so close to you, someone you love. For some of you, it's probably not that difficult to imagine because you've experienced something similar, betrayal by somebody close to you, someone you love. How would you feel if you were in David's situation? How would you respond? And how does God want us to respond in the face of trials. When life seems to be unraveling, where do you dream that you could be, if you could be somewhere else? Maybe if you have children, you look at them, and especially during the summer, you look back and you remember when life was carefree, when the summer seemed to stretch out forever, and there wasn't a care in your mind, but that's not your situation now. Now life seems like it's turned upside down, There's chaos. You feel disoriented by the struggles you're facing. When that is our experience, our reality, where do we go in order to get re-centered? Maybe some of you are in a spiritually dry time right now. Maybe you can look back and remember a time when you felt close to God, when you felt spiritually alive, and you want to get back there. You want to feel that again. But the pressures of life are causing you to feel dry. We don't need our our son trying to kill us. There's so many other things in life that that can lead us into spiritual drought. Maybe for you, it's your children rebelling or some physical illness that you experience. We find ourselves longing for intimacy with God, but life feels dry and dusty and it seems like there's nowhere to get a drink. 
frustrations at work, long hours, tensions in relationships, all of these things can make us feel spiritually dry and that's an uncomfortable place to be. And I know some of you are in that place right now. Here's the good news. This Psalm that we are going to look at together highlights for us the reality that we all have deep spiritual soul thirst, but it also points us to the place that God has created where we can have that thirst satisfied. So Psalm 63, if you have a Bible and want to turn there, it's in the middle of the Bible or phone app, or it's also on the screen. The title says, A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied with fat as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Our great and gracious God, you have invited us to come to the waters, whoever is thirsty, in order that we might be satisfied by you because you have living waters. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be at work even now during this time to open our hearts to receive your word. We ask that you would use that word to satisfy us so that we can say with the psalmist, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices my flesh also dwells secure. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so we pray that you would be at work right now, training our hearts to enjoy you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus met a Samaritan woman at a well, and he asked her for a drink. But it soon became clear that she was the one who was thirsty. She was there to draw water in the heat of the day when she knew that no one else would likely be there, which was a clear sign that she was isolated, cut off from her community, and Jesus knew why. Jesus told this woman that he knew that she had previously had five husbands and that the man that she was now living with was not her husband. But while everyone else avoided her or shunned her, Jesus actually pursued her. He intentionally went after her. He went to where he knew that she would be and he knew that she was desperately thirsty and he also knew that he was the only one in the entire universe who was able to meet her thirst and satisfy her. All of us, no matter, no matter who we are, no matter what our beliefs might be, all of us have a deep spiritual thirst. Some of us might not recognize that yet, we might not know exactly what it is that's driving us, but we are all 
running after things that we think will satisfy us. We're all running after different fountains, trying to quench our thirst. We're looking for satisfaction all over. Maybe some of you, like this woman, are looking for satisfaction in male attention or male affection. Maybe you've got a very poor relationship with your own father or no relationship at all, and so you're seeking to fill this hole in your soul with men. Or maybe for some of you, you think life would finally be enjoyable. It would be worth living if I only had a girlfriend or I only had a boyfriend. For some of you, you're seeking to satisfy your soul's thirst by running after popularity or acclamation or thinking if you can just accumulate enough achievements, enough awards, then you would finally be able to look in the mirror and say to yourself, now I'm okay. The reality is that because we're all humans, we're all made in the image of God, our hearts won't be satisfied apart from God. Because we're made for God, we won't be satisfied apart from him. In fact, our very reason for existence, the reason that we are here, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, to be with him and to enjoy him. We were made for God. And that's, that's where the story of the Bible starts, in a place called the Garden of Eden, where God put the first humans, Adam and Eve, in this wonderful paradise. And so God's people were in God's place, and they enjoyed his perfect presence, unmediated presence. They walked with him. But we're not in Eden anymore, are we? We're in exile. We're out of paradise and longing to return, looking for a way for us to get back, waiting for all things to be made new. We're pilgrims on our way somewhere. We're in exile. That's where we meet David in the Psalm. David was in exile. He was outside. He was hiding in the wilderness and he's missing something. And what he tells us is that he's missing the experience of God's presence. So what is it that makes David want that experience? What is it that makes David long for God's presence? And what we see is that he is entranced with God's covenant love. The beauty of the gospel, the good news, is that God enters into a relationship. It's called a covenant relationship with people like you and with me. He invites us into a love relationship where he gives himself to us. He makes people like us his own treasured possession. David remembers God's covenant. In verse 1, he says, O God, you are my God. You are my God. I am yours. You are mine. You're my God. That is, that is the covenant. That is the covenant that runs throughout the whole of the Bible. God says to his people, Back in Exodus chapter 6, 7, he says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So what God is saying is, I am rescuing you for a purpose. I'm rescuing you to bring you to myself to be in relationship with you. Later, the prophet Jeremiah would say it this way, Jeremiah 31, 33, I will be their God and they will be my people. So that's, that's the relationship that runs through the whole Bible. That's what the story of the Bible is actually 
all about God rescuing a people to be his own, to be his own possession, to have a love relationship with us. And all of that finds its fulfillment through God sending David's descendant, King Jesus, who accomplished this rescue through his death and resurrection. That's God's covenant love. And that's what David remembers. And it's remembering God's covenant love that will cause us too to long for his presence. So David says in verse one, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So David is longing for God's presence. That's what he misses. And where does he, where does he think he'll find it? Where does he know that he can experience God's presence? Where would you think to go? Where do you expect to encounter God's presence? Well, David says in verse two, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. David knows where he wants to be. David knows what he is missing. He knows what he's currently separated from. He longs to be in the sanctuary, but he just can't be there because he's out in the wilderness. But he knows, he knows that the sanctuary where God's people are gathered together for worship is the place to behold God's power and glory. So what does that even mean? What is this power and glory? What David is referring to is God's special presence. The special presence of God that went with his people in the cloud that followed them through the wilderness. God's special presence that filled the tabernacle, which was this huge tent where God's people gathered to worship, where God met with his people. God's special presence is what David knows he encounters when God's people gather together for worship. Our corporate worship, which is just a fancy way of saying when we all get together to worship on Sunday, our corporate worship is what's known as a covenant renewal ceremony that God himself conducts in which God reminds us week by week of who we are and whose we are, where he assures us that he loves us and that he's done everything necessary to establish and to sustain our relationship with him. That's why we gather. God renews his covenant with us. The author of Hebrews, that we've already heard from this morning in our call to worship and um, Daniel before the prayer. The author of Hebrews reminds us that it's only through the blood that Jesus Christ shed that enables us to have access into God's presence. It's only because Jesus became the perfect sacrifice for sinners like me and like you that we can possibly come into God's presence. And it's in Jesus that we see the power and glory. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus is the reflection of God's glory. So Jesus is what we are seeking and, and seeking to see as we gather together in worship. So here is, here's the main application that this psalm is driving us toward. It's encouraging us to give ourselves to worship because this is where God gives himself to us. Give yourself to worship. Why? Because this is where God gives himself to you. But if we're honest, we might realize that that coming to worship, that gathering together doesn't always 
excite and energize us like it seems to David, that there's other things that seem a lot more exciting than getting together, than coming to church. We often don't feel this kind of heart captivation that David is describing here. I don't most of the time. But what we need to see is that it's not a deficiency in what we're doing, and it's not a deficiency in the God that we are worshiping that is, that is causing us such little desire. It's a failure to see what's really going on, what God is really doing in our midst. It's very often the case that, that our expectations are set way, way too low. I mean, ask yourself this. When you got up this morning and, you know, maybe some of you had to dress little kids and you fed people a rushed and hurried breakfast and you got everybody out the door, but there was a lot of grumbling and you tried not to bicker and fight too much, but you were just trying to get here. What were you expecting? What were you coming to do to see? I mean, for some of us, probably our only thought was, we just got to get there. And why? Because, I don't know, it's the right thing to do. It's what we do. And sometimes, sometimes that's all that you have is just that sense of duty. And being in the right place is where you need to be. But God wants us to be drawn by something even more than that. He wants us to desire to be together. So often we don't have eyes to see what God is really doing. God wants us to experience his glory, but as C.S. Lewis said in his essay, The Weight of Glory, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Yet David tells us why we should be excited and energized to gather together each week to worship on the Lord's day because this is where God promises to reveal to us his power and his glory. The Bible describes in lots of different places what's taking place in heaven. Places like Isaiah 6 where we're given a vision of the throne room of God Places like Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation 19, the very last book of the Bible, where we're given pictures of heaven and we're reminded that there is a multitude upon multitudes of angels and archangels and people like us who have gone before us trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection, who are gathered around the throne, singing praises, filling heaven with God's worship. And if you are connected to God through Jesus' rescue. That's your future. That's where you are headed. And right here, right now, the future breaks into the present. When God's people gather together for worship, there is a portal opened up between heaven and earth, and we get to taste what is always going on and where we will be. So what do you do when you don't desire God's presence? What do I do when, when I find that, that my experience and the way that I'm feeling doesn't match the words of this psalm? When I don't really feel like David seems to feel? Because if I'm honest, I don't feel that way much of the time, probably most of the time. I'm often driven more by duty 
than I am delight. So what do we do? What do we do when we read words like this or hear words like this and go, I don't really, I don't really feel like that. God wants these words to describe the way way that we feel. God wants this to be the attitude of our hearts. And the good news is that he's actually committed to shaping and transforming our hearts so that more and more it is the case that we feel this way. And one of the primary ways that God is at work shaping our hearts is through giving us words like this psalm to sing and to meditate on. He puts these words in our mouths. In fact, the the psalms were first and foremost the hymn book of God's people. God gave his people these words to sing and to meditate on in order to be shaped by them. So the psalms aren't primarily expressive, but primarily formative, which means that their primary function is not to give me words to express the way that I'm already feeling. Although they do a great job of that and very often our feelings do mesh with what we read. But their primary function is to shape and transform our hearts so that we do desire what God desires and long for what David is longing for in this psalm. Their primary function is heart transformation because so often our hearts are out of shape. So often our hearts are bent. They're bent inward. They're bent in that we are looking outward, looking for so many other things that we think will bring us life and satisfaction. Sometimes we find ourselves in dry times and we really don't feel like being with God. We really don't feel like being with God's people. We really don't feel like coming to church. But God gives us the words of these psalms to sing and to meditate on in order to shape our desires, to remind us of his love and commitment to us. Some of us might not feel like the words of this psalm describe but what is it that will move our hearts to want to be in God's presence? And the answer is only remembering God's promises to us, only remembering God's faithfulness to keep his promises to us, only remembering God's steadfast love for people like us, only remembering that God has rescued us from the wilderness of our own sin, remembering that he loves us, enough to send his own son, Jesus, to rescue and redeem us. Remembering that King Jesus was another king who was rejected, who was hunted by his own people, who longed for God's presence, but God, his father, turned his face away, left him isolated with the shame of the world on his shoulders. Jesus cried out with the words of Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus hung naked on a cross of wood, he said, I thirst. And he did that to fulfill a later verse in Psalm 22, verse 15, that says, my tongue sticks to my jaws. Jesus experienced a kind of spiritual thirst that we can't even imagine and that we won't ever have to experience because he became thirsty so that people like us could be satisfied. He hung on a cross in order that people like you and me might be able to drink life-giving water so that we would never thirst again. He hung on a cross in order that he could give 
living eternal water to people like the adulterous woman that he met at the well and to spiritually adulterous people like me and like you. Those of us who spend much of our time and energy running after every other fountain, every other spring that we think will give us life, that we think will satisfy us. Jesus went into exile so that you could be brought home. So God's promise secures his presence. And in his presence, it's his love that leads our hearts to worship. So David says in verse three, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. What is that steadfast love? It's the steadfast love of God that would look at a murdering, adulterous, lying king like David and forgive him and call him a friend. It's the love of God that would lead him to promise David that he would always have a descendant to sit on his throne. And it's this steadfast love that would lead God to send his own son, Jesus, to be the one to forever sit on David's throne where he is right now, to send King Jesus in order to subdue our wandering hearts to himself, to protect us, to defend us, to conquer all of our enemies and to rule us. And if you're a Christian, through faith in Jesus, this is your story. Or if you were to put your trust in Jesus and his offer of life, this would be your story. And you know the particular ways that God has worked in your own life in order to connect you with his redeeming love. So the question for each of us is, are we able to say with David, your steadfast love is better than life? What would it, what would it look like if we really believe that were true? How might that change the way that we think and desire and the way that we live if we really believed God's steadfast love was better than life? How might we be willing to follow Jesus in ways that maybe presently we aren't willing or not very willing? Your steadfast love is better than life. What if we could say with the Apostle Paul in Acts 20, 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Your steadfast love is better than life. God doesn't call most of us to actual literal martyrdom, to give up our physical lives, but he may be calling us to give up some of our comfort, some of our security. We maybe should ask ourselves, am I willing to take any risks to give up any of my comfort to follow Jesus and the extension of his kingdom. So much of the time we place such a high priority on our own safety, our own security, our comfort. David speaks of meditating on God in the watches of the night. This was the most vulnerable time of the night, the watches of the night, the middle of the night. You can imagine David lying there as he's on the run, wondering if at any moment his enemies might come around the corner, if at any moment his enemies are about to fall upon him. He's yearning for daylight, but during this agonizing time, what's he doing? He's meditating on God and he's confident, verse five, that his soul will be satisfied by God. 
In the same way, we need to meditate on God's word and his promises so that more and more our hearts and our thinking are shaped by what God says is true in his word. Joshua, in Joshua 1, verses 8 and 9, we read, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Do not be frightened. Why? Because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And some of you may be called to go to distant lands and have. And may be called again to go to distant lands. Some of you might be called simply to go to the other side of town, to be a part of helping start a new church to reach new people, maybe in Inglewood, maybe in Golden. And that might be a difficult thing to consider because it would certainly mean giving up some degree of safety, security, comfort, Some of us may be uncomfortable simply being close to people or even having friends who presently don't believe and behave the way that we do or the way that we feel like people should. And what that might do for some of us is lead us to isolate ourselves from the very people who most need to hear about Jesus. God promises to be with us, to protect us wherever we go. And he might be calling you to go into a place of discomfort in order to reach new people with this offer of life. Maybe you're here this morning with us and, and you're simply investigating. You're exploring Christianity. Welcome. We're so glad that you're here. As you weigh the claims of Jesus, we'd love to interact with you and, and talk with you about whatever questions you might have. This is a, a safe place to Seek honest answers to honest questions. Let me encourage you to ask yourself, um, as you are hearing this part of God's word, what kind of a God could stir this kind of longing in a person? What kind of love could possibly be considered better than life? Because, I mean, love is great, but life is really important. And what is, life, what is love without life? And yet David says, your love is better than life. Well, the Bible tells us about that love. And it says that it's the love of a father who would send his son, his dearly loved son, into this world in order to die. And so that people like you and like me, simply by trusting in his rescue, could be forgiven and could have life forever. When we're reminded of God's covenant love in worship, as we gather together, what happens is that our minds are reoriented to the realities of, of what's actually taking place, to the realities of the kingdom that Jesus is presently at work building. David says, verse three, because your steadfast love is better than life, listen to the things that result. Verses three through five, there are these future tense verbs. David says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I will bless you. I will lift up my hands. 
the context of all these things is corporate worship, which is just a fancy way of talking about when we all get together for worship. And David is confident that he will once again worship with God's people in the future. Verse 8, he says, your right hand upholds me. He knows he's never outside of God's care. Verses 9 and 10, he knows the enemies of God's people will ultimately fail. And in verse 11, we see that he refers to himself as the king. So even though he's on the run, even though he's away from the palace, he's still confident in his kingship and that God will keep his promises to him. He's confident he will once again be brought back to worship. So corporate worship reminds us that there is a rightful king, King Jesus, who right now is on his throne, on David's throne, reigning and ruling, and our lives are in his hands. Verse eight, David says, your right hand upholds me. Verse seven, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. So as we experience God's presence in worship, we are assured of our future with him. And so we respond by praising him with joyful lips. We sing for joy, verse seven. And you know, it's, it's joy that should be one of the things that most characterizes the people of God. Of all things, we should be characterized as people who are joyful because we know whose we are and what God has done for us. And to the extent that, that we're not feeling joyful, we should ask ourselves if, we, if we've really understood and grasped this steadfast love that David's talking about. If we're not joyful people, we probably need to go back and be reminded of the good news of God's gracious rescue. Some of us, some of us might even get brave enough and enthralled enough by God's glory to be freed to do what David describes in verse four, to lift up our hands. Wouldn't that be crazy? Um, lift up our hands in praise and prayer, even in a Presbyterian church, especially in a Presbyterian church. Why? Because, because we love the Psalms and the Psalms remind us that we are embodied creatures, embodied people, not simply brains on a stick, as one author has described. Uh, the Psalms remind us that we are embodied in worship and we're called to recruit all of our members, all of the parts of our body uh, in prayer and praise. So David's convinced, verse 5, that his soul will be satisfied by God. And that's why we gather for worship. So if you ever find yourself driving to church on a Sunday morning and you're going, why, what are we doing? Why am I, why am I doing this? There's other things I could be doing. What are we doing? Or maybe your kids say, why are, we, why are we going to church? Why do we do this? You could simply say, uh, because it's the right thing to do, which is absolutely true. But beyond that, you could say, because this is the place where God promises his presence to us and where he promises to satisfy us. In the third book of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, two children, Lucy and Edmund, uh, have sailed with King Caspian to the far end of the world. And they find themselves in the land beyond the sea. And they meet the great, uh, great lion Aslan, who's about to send them back to their own world, back to England. And Lucy says, please, Aslan, before we go, will you tell us when we can come back to Narnia again? Please, and oh, do, do, do make it soon. Dearest, 
said Aslan very gently, you and your brother will never come back to Narnia. Oh, Aslan, said Edmund and Lucy both together in despairing voices. You are too old, children, said Aslan, and you must begin to come close to your own world now. And Lucy expresses her love for Aslan with tears. She says, it isn't Narnia, you know, sobbed Lucy. It's you. We shan't meet you there. And how can we live never meeting you? Lucy says, it's not about the place. It's about you being there. We want to be with you. The church father, St. Augustine, prayed, You made us for yourself, O God, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. So no matter who you are this morning, no matter where you've been, no matter what your background, no matter what you might find yourself believing or not believing this morning, here's what is true of you. You were made in the image of God, and you were made to be in a relationship with God. And the only place that you will ultimately find satisfaction for that deep soul thirst that we all experience is in a relationship with God. And the good news, the good news is that if you are in a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, God promises his presence to you. And he promises his presence every week as we gather together for worship. Some of you I know feel restless right now. Some of you feel like you are in exile. Some of you are probably in a dry and dusty time. You're wandering, you're thirsty. Some of you are probably keenly aware that you have wandered far from God, but for whatever reason, here you are. However you got here, God somehow has worked to bring you here this morning. And what you need to know is that if you are in a covenant relationship with God, through faith in Jesus Christ, or if you were to enter into a relationship with God simply through trusting in what Jesus has done to rescue you, then God promises to meet you week by week by week in order to satisfy and restore and refresh you. So may he make that the great joy and longing of our hearts as we gather together. Let me pray for us. Lord, we ask that you would create within us a great desire for your presence and that you would captivate us with your steadfast love, your redeeming love. Would you open the eyes of our hearts to see what is real around us, to see your power and your glory. Allow us to hear your word and receive it as the word of life. Allow us to see the simple elements of water and bread and wine and help us to see all of the realities that they point to. Would you make us able to say with David in Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, because this is where we believe that you give yourself to us. Amen.